Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So I kind of worded the prayer that way, things that we can apply to our lives the day that we live our, find ourselves in, um, because Deuteronomy was written for the nation of Israel. They have laws that we do not have. And uh, this was a special people that God had brought up to occupy the promised land. Moses is preparing them to enter into the promised land. And tonight in chapters 19 and 20, we see uh, two things being laid out, uh, civil, civil laws and military laws. So chapter 19 dealing with civil laws, how they should conduct themselves. And there was a lot of civil laws. This just happens to be one chapter focused in on that. And then chapter 20 focused in primarily on military laws that they were to conduct themselves by as they entered into the promised land. Not everything that God said to Israel is applicable to the church today. Although we can glean from some of these things and we'll begin talking about civil laws and the city of refuge. Well, we have no such city of refuge. We don't have that form of government or law in our country. But we can learn from the city of refuge the importance of it and what God desired from the city, cities of refuge that were six of them ultimately spread throughout all the nation of Israel that God primarily wanted justice in the land of Israel, that no uh, blood that was shed by uh, murder, by unrighteous means, that the murderer would not go unpunished. But if there was an accidental death, injury that led to death, then there was a place for that individual to go who accidentally killed someone there to the city of refuge where um, judgment could be made over their situation. And this is just one of the teachings here in Deuteronomy 19 about the city of refuge. A large teaching comes from Numbers chapter 35, and the cities are mentioned again uh, sporadically. And Leviticus, we find them mentioned in uh, Joshua. And so this isn't going to be the last time that we look at the city of refuge, but the importance of it for the nation of Israel. So the key verse, Deuteronomy 19, looking at civil laws, verse 2, God said, You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And so, very key, they were to set up three cities of refuge. Now, this is actually talking about three more cities of refuge because the two tri two and a half tribes of Israel, um, Ephraim, Gad, and a half tribe of Manasseh, already have occupied their inheritance. They requested it 
that they would take the inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. And there on the east side of the Jordan River, they had set up and established three cities of refuge. So this is talking about those who would enter into the promised land for the rest of the tribes of Israel, the nine and a half tribes that remained, that they too were to set up three cities of refuge, one toward the north, one toward the center, one toward the south, that would allow people a place to go if they found themselves in a certain situation that um, Moses explains beautifully here. But we begin in verses 1 through 3. He says, When the Lord your God has cut off all the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess. And you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts of the territory of your land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit that any manslayer may flee there. So as I said, they already had three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River. This is talking about the three cities of refuge that would be set up on the west side of the Jordan River. And according to the Lord, he gave cities to the Levites, 48 cities altogether. Of the 48 cities, six of these cities were determined to be cities of refuge where the manslayer could flee when he found himself in a situation with the avenger of blood hot on his heels wanting to catch him and kill him. So if you recall, the Levites were not allowed, allotted any inheritance in the promised land proper. When we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we never are naming the tribe of Levi by name. They would be scattered out through all, all the nations of Israel, uh, throughout the nation. So although Jacob had 12 sons, Joseph was not named either normally in the listing of the 12 tribes. Joseph wasn't named. His two sons were named in his stead, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so take away Joseph, take away Levi, and then add Manasseh and Ephraim, and you have the 12 tribes of Israel. When we talk about the 12 tribes, that is who we are talking about, even though Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph. And in um, later on in heaven, when we get into Revelation, Joseph will be named again. And so we find that the 12 tribes will be named as the 12 sons were called. But at this time, we're specifically, you remove Joseph, you remove Levi, you add Manasseh and Ephraim. Levi then is scattered out. God claimed Levi as his inheritance. God said to Levi, I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the children of Israel in Numbers 18.20. And so... God claimed them. He spread them out throughout the land. And I believe this is beautiful because God sent the basically the priest and the temple workers, spread them out throughout the land that 
there would be a constant reminder of the things of God in their territories because there was only one temple, only one allotted place where the people would gather to worship. Synagogues did not come into play until uh, Judah went into captivity during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So they didn't have local places of worship in all their different communities. They were to appear before the Lord, all males, three times of year, three times a year at the place where the Lord would choose. Ultimately, that place is the city of Jerusalem. So God allowed the Levites to be spread throughout all Israel in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. We learned that, yes, they were temple servants, workers, But once the temple was established, they didn't have to uh, move the Ark of the Covenant any longer. They kind of lost their jobs in that regard. They weren't like the 40 years in the wilderness where they were always packing up the tabernacle and packing up all the uh, instruments of the temple and putting them in carts or carrying them by hand. And once the temple was established... They didn't have to do all those things any longer, so they still worked to serve the priest there at the temple in Jerusalem, but they became teachers as well. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12 reminds us that they were teachers of the things of God. So these cities ensured that the Levites stayed connected with the people of Israel. They were one of the tribes of Israel, but also it worked in regard that the other 12 tribes would stay connected to the things of God by having the servants of God among them. Four through seven, we read, this is the case of the man slayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in times past. As when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and he His hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle, strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He shall flee to one of the cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in times past. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So three cities in all the land of Israel, it was still a long run. And if you could go horseback, I would suggest to do it. But they were to keep, it reminded me of those roads going to the cities of refuge of the king's highways. Uh, They were to have uh, roads that were not difficult for travel, that were kept up to make it possible that someone could make it to one of the cities of refuge, that the unintentional manslayer could come to one of these safe havens. And there, once at the gate, he would declare that he had killed someone, but that it was an accident. And he would be tried by the judge and the people of that city. They would... Uh, have a trial. And if he was found innocent, then here's the catch. He wasn't released to go home. He had to stay at the city of refuge 
until the death of the high priest. And so it doesn't tell us this in Deuteronomy 19, but we read about that in Numbers chapter 35, that if found innocent, he had to remain under the protection of the city until the death of the high priest. And if he left the city of refuge for any reason during that time, and the kinsman redeemer found him outside the city walls, then he could legally put him to death. So it was, verses 8 through 10, Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments to do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities, For yourself, besides these three, so besides the three that were on the east side of the Jordan River, they were to add three more cities on the west side of the Jordan River. Verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of the land which the Lord your God has given you to to inherit, and thus the guilt of blood shed be upon you. So Yahweh had promised their forefathers, all the way back to Abraham, to give the land to their descendants. Abraham received this promise from the Lord that was passed on to Isaac, that was passed on to Jacob, that was passed on to Jacob's 12 sons, now 400 years of captivity in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and they are now getting ready to occupy the land that had been promised to them over 600 years earlier. But here in this section, it's important for us to notice that there were three things that God required them to do, and all three are named in verse 9. They were to keep all these commandments and do them, keep and do, number one. They were to love the Lord their God, number two, and they were to walk always in his ways, number three. Moses here is merely repeating something that he had told them before in Deuteronomy 11, 22 through 23. Very similar, he adds one more thing in this listing, four things he gives them. He says, for if you're careful to keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. So he added earlier, holding fast to the Lord, and then the promise, Deuteronomy 11:23. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. So after conquering the land, after God gave them cities, and after they divided up the inheritance, and the Levi, and the tribe of Levi receives those 48 cities, six of the 48 were to be cities of refuge, Three of those cities already have been named for us with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh, and then three more cities would be named once they enter into the promised land, and those cities will be told to us when we get to the book of Joshua and the conquering there in the promised land. So the idea, not only to walk in the ways of the Lord, to love the Lord God, and to keep all his ways, but also that the land would 
have justice thriving throughout the land of Israel in order that the guilty would be punished, the innocents would not die unjustly. And uh, maintaining true justice in the land of Israel, a land would then remain undefiled in order that the Lord would remain, continue to dwell in the midst of Israel. And I was thinking about that this afternoon. And when I came back from lunch, and I'd already put together uh, over yesterday and this morning, the uh, most of, I had chapter 19 done as far as I was concerned when I went to lunch today, but that doesn't mean I'm finished and it's never finished. And I'll teach this tonight and I'll never be finished either because I'll look at it again and I'll see other things. But one of the things that stood out to me as I had lunch, came back to the church and uh, thought about the Lord departing. So the idea is that there would not be unjust blood shed throughout the land, that the Lord might dwell in the midst of the people, but Israel would constantly break the commandments of the Lord. They would fail in all these ways year after year, and God would have to bring them back and cause them to repent, and they would still fail once again until finally in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, It was seven years before Jerusalem's destruction that Ezekiel would prophesy concerning the glory of the Lord departing and leaving the temple, specifically in Ezekiel 10.18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And you go through that section in its four chapters, um, Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, And you see the Lord departing from Israel. God promised that if they would keep his commandments, if they would, verse 9, love the Lord their God and walk in all his ways always, then they would occupy this land and the Lord would be with them in the land, but they would fail ultimately. Although much older, older, a contemporary of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, but Jeremiah prophesied for uh, 40 years and would see the fall of Jerusalem just as Ezekiel saw the fall of Jerusalem. But Ezekiel is a bit younger than Jeremiah. But we find the, by reversing Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7, by reversing the call by Jeremiah for Israel to repent, we find exactly what they were doing that caused them to go into captivity. So just think about it backwards as I read this. This is why they went into captivity, but actually Jeremiah is calling them to repentance. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7, it says, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, you do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after gods to hurt to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. So all we have to do is reverse what God is calling them to do in repentance, because this is exactly what they were not doing. 
as far as walking in the ways of the Lord, they failed to execute judgment between the man and his neighbor. They were, in fact, oppressing the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. They were shedding innocent blood, and they were walking after other gods. And notice Jeremiah 7, verse 6, they walked after other gods to their own hurt. And yet God promised still that he would redeem them if they would reverse that trend. God is so faithful to take us with our failures and to turn us around when we look to him in life-saving faith. Sadly, Israel would fail to heed the commands of the Lord, that of Moses, that of the numerous prophets that followed after Moses. Therefore, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people taken into captivity to Babylon. So 11 through 13, we find if anyone hates his neighbor, so this is the intentional killer. If anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, arises against him, strikes him mortally, so that he dies and then flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the cities shall send and bring him from there, deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that you may that it may go well with you. So the avenger of blood was usually a near kinsman. He had the responsibility of handling a situation like this, avenging the death of a loved one. This is called a goel in the Hebrew, the avenger of blood, a kinsman redeemer in that sense, the goel, the kinsman redeemer. Usually one person held this role for each family. It could have been a city leader maybe had this responsibility, but it was important for the city of refuge to judge righteously. They were to have no pity on the guilty, and if found guilty, they were to be turned over to the avenger of blood that the innocent blood that was shed in Israel uh, may not go unjudged. And God said that it might go well with you. God expected justice in the land, not to pollute the land. Numbers 35, again, most all of Numbers 35 talks about the city of refuge. But Numbers 35, 33, and 34, it says, And you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. No atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Which basically means if someone murders someone, the only way that, that the blood of the innocent victim can be atoned for is by the death of the murderer. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for the, I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel." So they were to maintain true justice in Israel, that the land would remain undefiled in order that the Lord might continue to dwell in the midst, that the people might continue to dwell in the land. Now, I had said at the beginning of the teaching that this was for Israel, law specifically given to the nation of Israel. But we can look at it here in the United States and see that we are failing to have true justice in our land where 
murderers are going unpunished. Where innocence um, is actually being punished and justice is being perverted. And we could see where God at one time perhaps blessing the United States because of the great Christian influence that had been upon this land, like he blessed many other nations before us. I was thinking specifically of Europe and England and the nations there in Europe, how they were blessed as followers of Christ for many of these nations. For many years, we are just the younger of these nations. But I can also see that the Lord's blessing could be taken away, as God said to the children of Israel, I dwell among you, and if you want me to continue to dwell among you, then you need to have righteous judgments in the land that the innocent blood shall not go unatoned in the land. And it seems that we live at a time where, although God's Spirit is still at work throughout the whole world, in our nation, we see that there are unjust laws. We see that uh, the innocents are not being rightly presented before the courts, that there are those who um, a bribe can happen, law is being perverted, and the land is being defiled. All we have to do is Go to some of the major cities, and you don't have to go to the major cities. It's around here. Just uh, probably about three or four years ago, a man walking home here in Lake Villa from one of the local drugstores in Lake Villa, being robbed by two teens, but kicked and ultimately beat to death. Didn't have to go to Chicago or Milwaukee for that to happen. It happened right here in our small little town of 6,000 people. And those teens were, they were caught. But nonetheless, we see that we live in a land where justice really isn't dealt with. You perhaps have seen in the news recently of two teens um, who ran over a 62-year, I think he was 62-year-old. He was a retired police officer. I doubt if the teens actually knew that. He was just a man riding his bike on the road, and the teens videotaping it ran him over and killed him and saying that we're underage, so we're going to get off on this. They are going to be tried as adults, and they have both been caught. But we see that no longer in our land is true justice being maintained and it's for our harm. Just like worshiping other gods, God said to Israel that they were not to worship other gods to your own hurt, that of the innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well to you. We're doing all these things to our own hurt as a nation. In Joshua 20, Two through four, we find this theme picked up again. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourself cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be 
your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities, stands at the entrance of the gate, declares his case in the hearing of the elders of the city, they shall take him into the city as one of them, give him a place that he may dwell among them. So that was the law of the city of refuge. This is a beautiful picture of Christ in whom we find our refuge because we each have a death sentence hanging over us and it's to Jesus we must flee for that refuge. As far as the death sentence is concerned, 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, yes, we had a sentence of death in our lives that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And like the unintentional manslayer, when they showed up to the city gate, they had to declare their innocence, and we must declare our guilt by confessing our sin before the Lord. As the word tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet it's Jesus who paid the penalty of our sin through his death on the cross. So instead of our needing to pay that penalty, the debt, Jesus paid it for us. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by stripes, whose stripes you are healed. And finally, because of the death of the high priest, they, in their day, if someone was had unintentionally killed someone, they took refuge in the city of refuge. They had to stay in that city until the high priest died. And if the high priest was a young man when he became high priest, you might stay in that city for the rest of your life and never leave because they didn't switch out high priests uh, according to the Levitical law and the laws of Moses. That happened in the New Testament times because of Roman rule over them. But... A high priest was high priest for life. If he was young, if he lived a long life, you might be in that city for the rest of your life. But Jesus being our high priest, and because of his death, he gives us freedom. As it says in John 10:9, Jesus saying, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So I love the account of the city of refuge. Wait till we get to uh, Second Second Samuel, and we'll have a great lesson on the t- city of refuge. But you have to wait until we get to Second Samuel to get there. But I'm ready for it as soon as we get there. So verse 14, uh, not in con- uh, not really uh, flowing out of the context of the city of refuge. God just drops in one verse about the importance of uh, landmarks, property lines. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set. You, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So in the book of uh, Joshua, they would conquer the land. They would go out. They would set the landmarks. They would have their allotted portion for each tribe and then within each tribe each family would receive an allotted portion and they were to not mess with the established boundaries or property lines of the neighbors 
In Israel's day, it could be a stone, it could be a hedge, uh, it could be some kind of building or landmark that was set up. But you think about the stones um, that would be set up uh, in this area. And, you know, since we've been to Israel, especially northern Israel, um, I'm not exactly sure when this eruption took place, but you go north in Israel, and there is volcanic rock everywhere. And they have piles of rock. If they want to farm the land, they got to move the rock first in many of these areas. And it's black basalt, very hard stone. The ruins of the sanctuary in Capernaum that have been set up again today. The foundation stone is made of this black volcanic rock. The foundation stone has been around since the time of Christ. And uh, they would have to, you know, farm the land, move the land. I was thinking of northern Illinois and Wisconsin where we're at and all this field stone that keeps popping up. And you would see these piles. Uh, They tend to sell the rock to people to build and put in their houses. But sometimes in farmers, before they could plow the field, every winter the freeze and thaw cycle keeps pushing up these rocks. They become landmarks, established boundaries and borders. And if it's a pile of rocks, it's easy enough to move a pile of rocks. God said, you don't do that. Even though you're in the middle of a a 100-acre farmland, it's like, who would know if I move the pile, you know, 100 feet this way? God says, I will know. So you don't do that. You stay within your inheritance. Don't worry about the inheritance of your neighbor. And you think, well, that's no big deal, but You know, in my years on this earth as a homeowner, uh, our first home that we bought in Zion, I had both neighbors on both sides. I kind of walked into the situation. We bought the house. One neighbor's shed was halfway in my yard, and the other neighbor's driveway was six feet into my yard. Um, It's just like we just got here, and people are already encroaching on my property uh, it was kind of established like that. The one neighbor, when it went from a gravel driveway to asphalt, and I saw the asphalt being set up, it's like, you're not pouring that asphalt in my yard. There's a property line here, and you guys stay on your side with it. They were angry with me, but there was an established property line, and it worked out for them. They were able to squeeze by, and all it was originally they probably did set up that gravel driveway along the edge of the house, but they kept driving around the house so much that they kept pushing the gravel over and over until ultimately it was six feet into our yard. And so we've had to deal with this in my lifetime, Lily and I. Proverbs 22:28. do not remove ancient landmarks that your father has set. Now I think about this also, not just the physical landmarks, the property lines, but how about the laws that God had given Israel and God has given us to govern our land here in the United States, moving those ancient landmarks here in the United States as faith in Jesus Christ, a lot of the founders of our country believing in Christ. A lot of the laws that early, earlier came on in our 
country have been built upon a Judeo-Christian belief cycle. And there are people who are trying to move those ancient landmarks, saying that they're not necessary anymore. We don't need that anymore. And so we're not to move those ancient landmarks. I point back to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, for us today. And sadly, we live in a nation where they're, they're trying to not just move them, rip them up, get them out, destroy them. And in the process of that, they say they're looking for true justice, true righteousness. But all they're doing is making things worse and worse. It goes on to talk about judgment. This does tie to the cities of refuge. 15 through 21, one witness shall not rise up against another concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of any wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord. This means that they come before the tabernacle or temple where the priest is and the judges are. They shall stand before the Lord, verse 17, before the priests, before the judges, who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he ought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away this evil from among you, and those who have remained shall hear and fear. Those who remain shall hear and fear. I'll just go back to our own country now. We are not Israel, so these laws specifically don't tie to us. But we have in our own society now that it doesn't matter if you rob someone. You can go to a store, and as long as you steal underneath $1,000, you can steal $999 in some of these cities. And you won't be arrested for it. People hear that and thought, well, I'm going to. I just saw a video of two guys um, in front of, it wasn't a Home Depot, but it was like a Home Depot. It was a different big box store in some other state, had a different name on it. But they were stealing the lawnmower that was sitting out front and putting it in the back of a pickup. And you would think that it takes a while, and it took them a little bit to get a lawnmower. They didn't have a ramp. They lifted it and put it in there and, and didn't even get all the parts that were falling off. And it's kind of ridiculous. But the problem is, is that what people are hearing is that there is no law. There is no consequence. So they're hearing and they're not fearing. So they're doing. In this case, God says, you shall come down on the false witness that the people would hear and fear and hereafter shall not commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So these laws of retribution were actually, uh, it was the crime had to fit the punishment in the sense the punishment had to fit the crime. I said that backwards, but Um, If you took someone's eye, then your eye would be taken out. If you knock somebody's tooth out, then they would knock a tooth out. If you you intentionally took somebody's hand off, 
Your hand would be taken off, a foot, a foot, a burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So God gave these laws to keep Israel from becoming like the lawless nations around them, but also that the judgments wouldn't be disproportionate to the crime. You took my eye out, so I'm killing you. That's disproportionate. And although the Mosaic law taught an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Jesus taught differently to his church. In Matthew 5, 38 through 42, Jesus said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic. Let him have your coat also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give him who asks of you. And from him who wants to borrow, you shall not turn away. So my dad was teaching his young teenage son probably wrongly about the uh, commandments that the Lord gave here. But uh, I remember my dad teaching me about if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other afterwards to him. And then my dad told me, it does not tell you what to do after that. So... (laughs) Dad was kind of saying, you know, if it has to go to a fight, fight on. That's not what Jesus said. (laughs) It's what my dad said. I think we uh, need to do what's right in our land, and we need to stand for justice. These civil laws for Israel was to help to govern their people, that God uh, would not only ensure righteousness and justice would rule throughout their land, but that Yahweh himself would dwell among the people. And that's what we desire, that the Lord would be in our midst, that we would walk in righteousness and justice and do what is right. So God gives military laws. We won't spend as much time with the military law, but there is a portion of this that I love, absolutely love, in Deuteronomy chapter 20. So let's go ahead and get into it. He's preparing the children of Israel, Moses is, to enter into the promised land. So he reminds them that God will be with them and also go before them. And then he tells them in verses 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy 20, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and the people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So ever before they stepped foot in the promised land, Moses reminded Israel that they would be going against an enemy that was more numerous, that was better equipped. Israel wasn't running around with chariots. In fact, God really didn't want 
Israel to multiply chariots in their land. That was something that the world did. A chariot in their day has been compared to a military tank of our day. It was a uh, implement of warfare that allowed speed and victory over the enemies. And God said, I don't want you to be worried about that. You see them, you look at that, don't even fear. Because God is not only with you, he's going to go with you into battle. He is going to fight for you. And it's good to know that in this world that God and Jesus continues to fight for us, that the Lord Jesus Christ is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. This gave Moses... I got a cough wanting to come up. I'm just going to get it out of the way. (coughs) I swallowed wrong and caused that. But anyways, not Moses, but Paul to say, and we know this, these two verses from Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also freely give us all things? That God is not only with us, he is for us. And God has shown that truth to us by the giving of his only begotten son. The second thing that I want us to notice, first of all, is that God reminded them that Moses reminded them that God was with them and would go with them into battles. Secondly, the priest, they were to, it was actually singular, the priest was to speak words of encouragement over the children of Israel. So the military was not to be disconnected to the religious uh, side of their community. Um, In fact, as I was reading that, I was thinking God was saying that they needed to have military chaplains in their midst to pray with them, to encourage them, to speak a word over them before they go into battle. And One such encouragement we find in Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. God trains our hands for the warfare that we are to engage with in this life. Now, I was not in the military, but my hands were trained in a couple of different things. They um, have been trained uh, out of pleasure, been trained to be a bass player. I still try to be a guitar player. Uh, But when I sit to play the bass, I don't have to sit down to play the bass guitar and wonder, What am I supposed to do with my left hand? My left hand knows what to do. Even now I'm holding it in the shape that I would hold it if I was on the neck of the guitar and the spread of my fingers, which actually are probably a little wider. Um, I know they are my left hand than my right hand because I've stretched them out playing that instrument so much. But what I was thinking about years ago, one of the brothers that used to attend this church and moved down to Florida with his bride many years ago, Uh, He was a brick mason, and he was out of work, and I said, 
to this brother. It's like, you're out of work and I'm wanting to put a fireplace in my house. Can I hire you to help me build a fireplace that um, it would just go quicker having two masons instead of one? And then I told the brother, I said, I've built a lot of fireplaces, but I've never built one for myself. So don't take this wrong. But every stone inside my house, I want to lay these stones. You can help me on the outside. He was my laborer on the inside. He goes, man, I understand. So I laid the stones. I hadn't laid brick or stone for a long time. And I began to build the fire box. And at one point I yelled at Dale and I said, my hands remember. They remembered what they were supposed to do as a brick mason. I hadn't laid brick in a long time. But my hands remembered. My hands for war, my fingers for battle, trained up. Just think of David, how he would grab a sword and grab his shield or grab a, a spear. His hands were prepped for war. And yet we as believers, in Ephesians 6.10, it reminds us, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We have a different warfare that we are to engage in. And so he speaks. This is a portion that I just love. It really teach, taught me things in times past, and it's things that I like to teach to younger couples, especially when they're getting married or maybe uh, someone going on a new venture in their life. In Deuteronomy 20, verses 5 through 9, he says, Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there of you who has built a new house, has not dedicated it, you haven't moved in yet, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there of you, if planted a vineyard, has not eaten of it? Now this is interesting as I was thinking about this, because we mentioned on Sunday, uh, talking about the fig tree in the Mosaic Law, if you planted um, a vineyard, a fig tree, or some kind of fruit tree, for the first three years, you couldn't touch it the fig, the produce of it. The fourth year was to be dedicated to the Lord. And the fifth year, you were able to finally harvest and eat of the fruit of that tree or vineyard. And so I don't know if they got like five years off. You know, I just planted a vineyard here. It's going to take me a while before I can actually um, eat of it. According to Mosaic law, it would take them five years before they could have the fruit of that. So he says of the vineyard, you planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it. Let him go or let him return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. Number seven, if a man has betrothed to a woman, has not married her, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there of you who is fearful, faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains over the armies to lead the people. So they would say these things and they, you know, you got, let's just say one side of this, a thousand men. And there could be some 20,000 or more, but let's just leave it simple. A thousand men and it's like, hey, has anybody built a new house and you haven't dedicated it yet? And you got 10 hands go up. It's like, all right, you guys can go, go home. Anybody planted a new vineyard and not uh, 
ain't from that vineyard yet, 20 hands go up. And it's like, go, go. You don't have to be in battle. How about anybody got betrothed lately? Um, haven't married your wife, you're betrothed, but haven't married yet. And you maybe have five, maybe you have 15. Yeah, you guys can go. Go home, marry your wife. Anybody afraid? You got a hundred hands go up. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Then after that, it makes sense. Verse 9. Then they shall make captains over the army. You wouldn't want to put a fearful man as your captain. Get rid of those guys. Let them go home. But release those who are not required for military duty at the time. Release the fearful. And then you would have a strong army to go forth and fight. In our day and age, in 2 Timothy 4.2, no one engages in warfare, entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And that's kind of what is happening here. They would be worried about, man, I just built a house. I didn't get to move in. It's not been dedicated. They'd be worried about that when they should be worried about their brother to the left or right when they were in battle. So I've liked this passage for years because it it teaches me that we'll have certain seasons in our lives where certain things should take priority. Too often we might busy ourselves with the cares of this life and we don't take time to cherish the things that the Lord has blessed us with, like getting a new home or maybe establishing a vineyard or we might say some new work or especially uh, getting married. I try to talk to newlyweds to kind of take that first year a little slow. Don't get so involved with the rest of life that you don't take time for that season in your life. I think God wants us to enjoy the gifts that he has given us and graciously allows us to have so that we could have our hearts strengthened with joy. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So they were to go out and offer peace, verses 10 through 15, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be if that they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers into the city into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, all that is in the city, all the spoils shall be plunder for yourself. And you shall eat eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities. This is key, verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of this nation. So this is not talking about the seven specific um, nations that were named in the promised land that Israel was going to dispossess. This is talking about uh, cities outside of the promised land proper that perhaps Israel, as God blessed them, they spread uh, beyond the boundaries of the promised land proper and uh, would have vassals from these other nations. Like in the reign, the best example of this is that of David. Solomon inherited 
David's um, victories. And so that of David and Solomon. In 2 Samuel 8, 5 and 6, it tells us that when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Adahazar, the king of Zoab, Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians, and David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants, brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So they were a nation that was far outside. Damascus is outside the promised land proper, but they became vassals to David. Now, they warred against David. He won in victory over them. But this was, if the offer of peace was rejected, Israel was to, if they became victorious, they were to put to death all the males while they would keep the women and children alive and the possessions of that city then would become the spoils of war. Again, this was God directing Israel. So when we go to battle, we shouldn't, um, we can take, you know, you can take and do an offer of peace if you're going to war. And you can have a peace treaty and cause um, treaties to be signed and cause nations weaker than you to adhere to them. But this isn't necessarily a guideline for uh, warfare for the United States, but it was for Israel. In Joshua 11:14, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took his booty for themselves. They struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing. So that was a judgment. And this especially goes to the cities of the people of the land. God was bringing judgment upon them. As we read in verses 16 through 18, but the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hivites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, or Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest you teach, they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So God had prophesied to Abraham that he was going to give this land as an inheritance to the children of Israel, but he also gave the people of that land, the Canaanites specifically, and the Amorites named in Genesis 15, verse 16, four generations or 400 years, saying, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here, the children of Israel shall return in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God said in verse 14 of Genesis 15, I will judge them. And so this was God's judgment against these nations. But it was a judgment that he waited some 600 years to fulfill. And I give that 600-year number because we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then the children of Israel went to Egypt for 430 years. Then they came out, and there's 40 years in the wilderness. And finally, um, they would occupy the promised land. So Israel was to totally remove the inhabitants of the promised land and any reminder of their idols to prevent them from worshiping these pagan gods. But they were not to do so all at once. But little by little, as scripture has already told us, 
God said if they were not obedient to this, he would leave them, though, as an irritants, thorns, to harass them. And this, sadly, is what happened with Israel, that they did not totally obey the Lord in this regard. And those nations ultimately helped to turn the hearts of the Israelis away from the Lord God who had redeemed them. Finally, and we close out in chapter 20, a little green environmental piece. (laughs) Not really environmental in that sense, but God was giving them a land full of um, fruit and honey and a fruitful land. And so he said, he gave them laws for warfare, verses 19 and 20. When you besiege a city for a long time and make war against it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down and use it in the siege. For the tree of the field of, is a man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build your siege works against the cities to make war with you until you subdue it. So God was giving them a fruitful land and they were able to use all non-fruit-bearing trees in their warfare, but not the fruit-bearing trees. If you strip the land bare, it will not be a fruitful land, but a barren land. So this was for Israel's warfare. Our warfare is different in the church today. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 says, For we walk in the flesh, though we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of the God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. God gave Israel both civil and military laws that we've looked at tonight that they might be a people who conduct themselves in justice and righteousness, that they might be an example to the other nations around them of what it meant to be a people of God that they would keep the commandments of God, that they would love Yahweh, their God, and walk in his ways. It may be that we would be such witnesses before those in the land that we live in, that we would be those who would walk in the ways of the Lord to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to walk in all his ways. Thank you, Father, for your word that you've given us tonight. A word specifically, Lord, that was given to the children of Israel many, many years ago, thousands of years ago. But things that you taught them can be applicable for us today. Or maybe, Lord, we see the failures of our own nation who have moved the ancient landmarks that our forefathers have set up. Landmarks that talk about justice and righteousness and trusting in God a nation, Lord, that was built upon the foundation, Judeo and Christian foundations, that many are wanting to move these landmarks, strip them away, get rid of them. They are looking for a justice that they'll never find, and in the process of their search, they will ultimately destroy themselves and our own country. But Lord, you've planted us here in this day and age 
So help us to live in this world that you've given us in such a way that we represent Christ before others. In a very bleak and barren place of this nation, Lord, there are many people without hope. May we help be that hope for others to point them to you, our true hope, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to be a good example that we could point others to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.